very unusual pastor or even a teacher. So I grew up incredibly shy. I remember when I was probably between seven and eight, I had to give a speech in my English class, or just my class, uh, about um, Abraham Lincoln, and I had to recite the Gettysburg Address. And it was the most terrifying thing my little eight-year-old brain has ever done. Sweat was pouring off my body. I had these cards. I remember the cards got out of order, even though I numbered the cards, because of like just the intense stress, the intensity, and the fear. I, I was rambling. I had no idea what I was saying half the time. I probably got like a C or a D or an F. And after that, there were many times where I would just take a zero for standing up in front of people and talking as part of my projects. Like, I was a good student, I was fine, I had A's, so I could take a zero, and that's exactly what I did for a lot of my studies. It's like, I don't wanna be in front of people, I don't wanna talk in front of people, I'll just be in my books and learn that way, and that's, the, that's what I was gonna do. And even, when I was in college, I got involved in a, a campus ministry. I had some great friends who invited me to church, invited me to campus ministry. I remember one of the first times I had gone, somebody just asked me, one of the ladies asked me if I would pray. And I was a Christian, pretty strong Christian, but I said, no, I'm not going to pray in front of anybody. So I feel like I'm a very, un and I don't know what happened. To tell you the truth, like I studied abroad for a semester, God put something in my heart uh, to be in front of people. Also part of it is like if I'm going to do something I don't like, I'm going to do it right away. Like, I'm always the first one if there's like a speech or something you have to do, I'm, I'm first. I don't want a bunch of great people to be in front of me. <laughs> and just over time, God put this in my heart to teach, to be a pastor, I, I, I can't really fully explain it. But I would say like, I'm not polished. I'm not the best looking person here. I'm not very smooth. I can be quite awkward at times. Those of you who have personal conversations with me. I'm a very unlikely person. But I believe that this is something that God expects and wants from this world. He wants the unlikely people the unlikely places to be the ones that display his glory the best. And I'll read you a scripture. It's not our main scripture. But it's from 1 Corinthians 1, 26. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God choose, chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, right? So not many of us are noble birth, not many of us are royalty, not many of us are super rich, super smart. I mean, we all think we're smart, but maybe not as smart as, as, as many others. But that is God's purpose and plan. So my big idea for today is that God's will is to use unlikely people and places. God's will is to use unlikely people and places. 
for his glory. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to do the first two verses. Give us some background onto Ephesians. It says, Paul, an apostle of Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So if God's will is to use unlucky people in places, my first point is that God willed a Jewish peasant to inaugurate, to begin his kingdom. God willed a Jewish peasant to inaugurate his kingdom. So you see Jesus Christ is mentioned three times in the first two verses. And this is what I talked about last week about the story of redemption, right? It culminates all the things in the Old Testament, all the events, all the, the salvation of the people of Israel from the Egyptians, um, and, and everything else leads to Jesus. It's the central point of salvation focuses on these four Gospels, on who Jesus is. And it says in Isaiah that Jesus was not someone handsome or beautiful that we would behold him. He was not a conquering king, right? He was poor, right? He was homeless. If you look at his ministry circuit, he depended on friends to even have a place to live. Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, they were some of his friends that supported him during his ministry. He was also a carpenter. He was not a scholar. He was not a thinker. He was not a philosopher. He was from a small village, right? He was Jesus of Nazareth. Right? He was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. Not a, not, a, not a thriving metropolis, a people of dozens, maybe a couple hundred people in his town, right, on the Sea of Galilee. But he, so this, this nobody, everyone who's anyone in the Old Testament and even in that day came from where? Does anybody know? You were a big deal. You came from Jerusalem. You were from the capital. You are from the city. That's where the temple was. That's where God's presence was. And if you wanted to make a difference, if you wanted to be part of what God was doing, you would be in Jerusalem. Jesus was not born in Jerusalem. However, he drew massive crowds from all over the place. Massive crowds. You know, the feeding of the 5,000. That was 5,000 men. So more like 8,000 with women and children as well. Did that a couple different times. People would come from all over the place. It says that people came running to Jesus from everywhere where he could not even get a decent night's sleep. Right? He had to go away to some other places or try to go away to some other places to give him, him and his disciples some rest. He was incredibly influential. The Pharisees, even though they didn't like him, they came to him still. They tried to make his life difficult. Most of the Pharisees were from Jerusalem. 
How is that possible? That is not the person you'd expect. I would think somebody from Rome or from Jerusalem with power, with strength, would be the person that would inaugurate his kingdom to start the kingdom of God. But he wasn't. He was poor. He was homeless. But he healed many and he, he created an impact that reverberates even to today and beyond into eternity. He lived a life that was perfectly obedient to God the Father. He obeyed God in every aspect of his life. And even after all that fame and all that glory he could have had, he chose to suffer and to die alone. None of the crowds were there when he suffered, when he died. None of his disciples were there. They abandoned him. Like, we're out. This is getting wild. We're done. And he died alone next to two criminals and people who mocked and jeered and harassed him. That's how he died. That's how he suffered. But he didn't just suffer being the wrong place at the wrong time. Like I said, he had thousands of people that loved him, that knew him. He chose this path to suffer and die alone for my misdeeds, for the wrong things I've done and the wrong things you've done. He, this plan was in place before the foundation of the world, it says. That God planned, knew that we were going to sin, and he planned salvation through Jesus, his son. He said, I'm going to go I'm going to take their punishment for their sins. So when Jesus was on the cross, he was suffering physically, but he was also suffering spiritually, taking the wrath of God for my sins and for your sins. So that anyone who believes in Jesus receives the perfect life, the perfect <coughs> obedience of God. So when he sees you and me, if you believe in Jesus, he sees you as perfect. Like his son. He says, you are my son. You are my daughter. Because what Jesus did for you. Not because you're a great person. Because Jesus was a great person. And he suffered for you. And then he rose again on the third day. Didn't just die. He came back. We're going to have Easter in a few months to celebrate that. But his his rising from the death shows that his sacrifice for you and for me, was accepted by God. But death could not hold Jesus because Jesus is God. So even though Jesus, the man, died in any, it says he yielded up his spirit back to the Father. But on the third day he rose, showing the sacrifice is accepted, and that we as believers have an opportunity to rise again from death as well. And he spent time. He didn't just rise and then go right back up to heaven. If you were lucky, you got to saw him, a couple people, a couple women. No. He spent quite a bit of time with his 11 disciples, with other disciples that he knew. There's, there's the 12, minus Judas. But there's other people. There was the 72. There were the crowds. He had more than just the 12. The 12 were his most important disciples, but not his only ones. It says, actually, Paul says, 
that 500 people saw him in his resurrected state. 500 people. So not some shadow of the night, resurrection and back to heaven. No, he spent months with these people and 500 people saw him alive. So at that time, it was a proof saying, if people want to speak up against the resurrection of Jesus, now's your chance. Right? But no one did. And then after these 500 people saw him resurrected, he gave the Great Commission for his disciples upon his resurrection. He said, you will go into all the world, among all the nations, sharing about me, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. So he gave a, a, he gave a commission, he gave a marching orders for his disciples. So here's the plan, guys. You're going to go to all the nations of the earth and share me, share my life, share my teaching, share my death. And I'm going to be with you through all this. Make disciples. Make people who know Jesus. People who didn't know Jesus to know Jesus and to make those who know Jesus to know Jesus better. That was his commission. And then he ascends back into heaven. Right? They all see him going up into heaven around him. And then the next book after the four Gospels is the book of Acts, which is the Acts of the Apostles. Apostles is another word for the sent ones or the disciples, the original disciples who saw Jesus in his resurrected state are the apostles. So this is the next book. Luke wrote his gospel. He also wrote a sequel, which is the Acts of the Apostles. And he tells the disciples in the beginning of Acts, this is the chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, capital city, and all Judea, that's the area in Samaria, the northern part. And to the ends of the earth. So this is radical. We, if, you've, if you've heard this scripture before, it's a very common scripture. But this is such a radical thing of his day. Because Jesus was Jewish. He lived and he preached almost exclusively to Jews. There was a few occasions in the Gospels where he, he talks to Samaritans, where he talks to people uh, across the Sea of Galilee who were centurions or Romans, but 90 plus percent of his ministry was to the Jewish nation, to his people. His followers were all Jews, right? There was no idea of Gentiles being part of God's story. Because a story of redemption in the Old Testament is about a people. The people of the descendants of Abraham, right? The descendants of Abraham, they were God's chosen people. And this was the plan, right? That, that if you look at the Old Testament, it's all about the Jews. Now, there are occasions where God goes outside. Think of um, Ruth and Boaz. Ruth was a Moabite. Right, there's a, and there are a couple other stories where they, he goes outside, where God goes outside the parameters of the Jewish nation, 
But almost all of it, the Old Testament, is about the Jews. So this is a radical concept that they were going outside of the Jewish nation. They probably had no idea this was happening, even when he said that. And Christianity wasn't born after Jesus ascended into heaven. That's not how it went down. In fact, the these they would, they would call themselves probably what we call today Messianic Jews. When it started, it was a sect of Judaism. It was a part of it. There was there was just like there's different streams of Christianity. You have Protestants. You have Catholics. Um, you have different denominations. There were different streams of Judaism, even tracing back to the to the first century when Jesus was around. Right, you had the Zealots. Right, one of his disciples was a Zealot. That that those people they were a sect of Judaism who believed we need to physically overthrow the Roman government to get our people back. Violence, no problem. Those are the Zealots. You also had the Palestinian Jews. This is like this is God's people. In their homelands, right? This they think this is the right form of Judaism. You stay in Israel, right? Even though it's occupied by other people. There's also the Hellenistic Jews, which, if you read the book of Acts, it's a great starter for what happens in Ephesians. They had Hellenistic Jews, so these were Jews who had Greek backgrounds and probably incorporated some of the Greek logical, philosophical ideas into Judaism. And then you had, with the resurrection of Jesus, you had these Messianic Jews that they believed that the Messiah had come. So it wasn't like Christianity day one. No, you had all these different sects of, of Judaism, all kind of competing and vying for, for control. And even 20 years after the ascension of Jesus, the Roman government did not fully understand Christianity. They said there's a sect of, there's a quote from one of the early Roman Empire emperors who said, who are these people that follow Christus or Christ? These Jews who follow them, we're going to kick them out of the city because these people are causing too much of a ruckus. So even then, 20 years after the ascension of Jesus, they still didn't fully understand who are these people who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They thought there's another crazy sect of Jews, and these people are causing lots of problems because they're getting lots of followers, and we need to kick them out of the city. So this idea that this, this great commission and this command to go to all the nations was incredibly radical. And actually, they probably didn't understand it until later in the book of Acts because there were Jews living all over. Judaism had quite a following in, in those days. There were people who... Uh, anybody can become a Jew if you just followed all our rules and what we want you to do. You can become, become Jewish, not by heritage, but by religion. And all over the Roman Empire... Judaism was, there were synagogues, right? Jewish houses of worship. In Rome, in uh, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, there were synagogues. Paul went to everywhere he went, he started in the synagogue, because he started with God's people first. 
And actually, in the Roman Empire, the, the policy was you assimilate our gods. That was a Roman policy. If we conquer you, you come, you get our group of gods, and that's, that's who you are. Jews had a special exception because they knew they could not control them. They would not, they would not bow to these foreign gods. So they had the only exception was to the Jews because the Roman government knew they could not take that away from them because they would just, and they did, and they have continually rebelled against that. So this idea that God is going to the, to the Gentiles was radical even for the disciples. They didn't have a full understanding of this. And that's why Jesus is such an unlikely person, because Jesus was a Jew. You think his salvation was for the Jews. Unlikely person. But he says not only to give eternal salvation, but also to allow Gentiles, all of us in this room, right, to, unless I don't, unless I don't know you very well, all of us are Gentiles. We are non-Jewish people, non-Jewish race people, and God allows, through Jesus, we also are granted this salvation. We're, we're part of that. We're grafted onto the vine, as it says in the, in the New Testament. Not original, but we're part of God's people. And this is how the world functions, right? It functions through works, right? Achievements, if, you, if you've worked or if you've lived for long enough, you're valued by what you do and what you achieve, right? Achievements brings wealth. Achievement brings love. You want to find a husband or a wife that is successful, valuable, economically useful. Admiration. You love it. We, I mean, we, it's not necessarily an evil thing, but we get our value in a lot of ways from what we do. The first, the second thing I ask people when they come, I say, you know, how do you hear about the church? The second thing is, what do you do? Right? Because even I am part of that, that world where it's like what you do is who you are. Right? That's the, how the whole world works. It's highly conditional. Right? If you lose your job, you lose more than economic um, success, but you also lose kind of your identity. Right? Because you are so bound to what we do. But that's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is not about achievement. You can't earn the gospel. You can't deserve the gospel. You can't achieve the gospel. Only Jesus could earn it, right? He did earn it. He achieved it. He lived perfectly. And only he can give you his righteousness. It's a gift. You cannot earn it. You cannot achieve it. No matter how good we try to be, we are so imperfect. Because we know deep down, deep down I know that I'm a very broken, sinful individual. Maybe not so much in my actions anymore, but in my heart, in my thoughts, in my mind. I still think of evil. I still think of sinning against my wife, my kids, my friends. I want to put myself first. And you have to, to, to receive the gospel, you have to be humble, right? You have to say, God, I am so broken. I need help. 
please save me. You cannot say, I am such a great candidate for your kingdom, God. I will do so much for you. I will make your kingdom so much bigger. I did, I've earned this. Because I am so valuable as a believer. No, right? He doesn't, God does not care about what you've achieved in this life. He has is, he is zero concern. Everything you've done, all that you've learned, your, how successful your job, God does not care about that when it comes to your salvation. No, he cares about you and he loves you. And he, he wants you to have a job that is fit for you, whether that's a doctor, a lawyer, a mother, whatever that is. God has a plan and a purpose for that. But that does not have any bearing on whether you're a Christian or not. In fact, the proud, they reject the gospel. That's the primary reason in people's heart where they say that they don't take the gospel, they don't receive the gospel. So they think they don't need it. Right? I don't need God. My life is going great. That's why that verse in the beginning about not many noble, not many wealthy, not many powerful, right, receive the gospel because they think they got it on their own. Right? I got this. God loves me. I'm great. I've never killed anybody. I've never committed adultery. I'm a good guy. I work hard. My family loves me. I'm a good provider. Whatever that is, that pride causes us to reject Jesus to our, to our eternal damnation, right? There's going to be a room in hell full of all the people who have said they didn't need Jesus. But we, if we're humble, we say, I am a sinner. I am broken. It's like, you know, Jesus told the story of uh, there's two men, right, went out to, the, to pray. One was a Pharisee. He says, God, thank you. They're not like all these other terrible people. I fast twice a week. I'm not this terrible tax collector. I'm a wonderful representative of your kingdom, and thank you for all these things you've given me. The other one was a tax collector. He said he beat his breast, would not even look up to heaven, and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, which one went, to, went home justified, his prayers answered and heard, was a tax collector. That's how we need to be if we're going to believe in Jesus. We need to be humble. We need to care about him. Because he cares about your hearts. And Jesus himself could have been born anywhere, right? He could have been the center of the Roman Empire. But his kingdom is opposite. It values humility. It values brokenness. So my question is, in this room of this size, do you have a relationship with Jesus? We can be successful in this life. That's not what I'm saying against. But before God, we are humble. We wait. We trust. We hope in him. We can also be used in our weakness and our brokenness for his kingdom, right? The, the kingdom is not for the successful, it's for our brokenness. And says, hey, this is for me, this is for you too. I'm broken, you're broken, come on in, right? We're, it's not looking for success stories. My second point, God wills an enemy to be his greatest missionary. I'm talking about Paul here, who was originally called Saul. He was born in Tarsus on the Mediterranean. Do we have the map? Is it somewhere? 
try and find it myself. And that looked much bigger before I before I went up in front of everybody. Born in the Mediterranean. He was a Roman citizen. He was also a Jew. Not by conversion, but by birth. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the last remaining tribes of Israel. He was also a Pharisee, which were like the religious leaders who persecuted Jesus. They were the leaders of the day. People looked to them for instruction in, in how to be a good Jew. And he was dedicated to eliminate this messianic sect of Christianity, of, of Judaism. That was his job. He was going to eliminate. He persecuted. He imprisoned. He overseed <laughs> killing of those who believed in Jesus. He would, they would seem to him like this new sect cannot exist. And it says, Paul, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's looking to imprison them, to kill them, to get rid of them, to stop them. He was trying to get this permission from the synagogues to say, this, this sect has to go. But, an unlikely, unlikely missionary for his people, he, an incredible light knocks him down. Jesus appears to Saul and says, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus. You're persecuting me. Stop doing that. Makes him go blind for three days. Gets another believer to say, you need to go to this guy. Say in the name of Jesus, you are healed. Scales fall from his eyes. He's baptized. He has a time of reflection in Arabia. And then he's called an apostle because he saw the resurrected Jesus. He saw him. So an apostle is the disciples, and all the disciples saw Jesus resurrected. And Paul also saw him resurrected. He began preaching the gospel in all the synagogues that he originally went to to stop the sect, to promote the sect, to promote Jesus as the Messiah throughout the known world. Right, that map that I have? Right, his missionary journeys? He went all over the known world at the time to share the gospel with Jews and Gentiles. He opened the door to Gentiles, changing Christianity forever. Right? When it came to the, the Gentiles were allowed to receive and understand the gospel, it radically changed the the, the direction of Christianity. And it says, Jesus says, Go, for he is a chosen intern of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So all of them. So God can take enemies and make them into missionaries. No one is beyond the need and the reach of Jesus. Your best days are not beyond the need of Jesus, and your worst days are not beyond the reach of Jesus. You were once, like me, haters of God and wanted to live our own life. But God took you, he took me, he saved us, and made us part of God's kingdom. You are also chosen instruments. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And the question I want to ask is, what kind of instrument do you want to be? We can have the same impact in Kuwait that Paul did. Right? We live in a place 
like the place where Paul lived, of people who do not believe in Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. But they can believe. Muslims are not beyond the reach of Jesus. They are not. They can believe. God says, Jesus says, the fields are white with harvest. Like, it's harvest time. Let's bring these people in. Ask for help. Pray to the Lord. Tell people about your experience with Jesus. Invite them to church. I will try to do my best to share the gospel every week. If you can just get them to come here, they will hear the gospel. People want, people need, people are hungry to have the peace and forgiveness that only Jesus can bring. Just like Paul, an enemy became his greatest missionary. We are once his enemies, and we can be missionaries for his kingdom as well. And my third point is that God wills a pagan city to be a centerpiece for his kingdom. So he writes this to the saints, which means believers, in Ephesus. It is the capital city in the province of Asia. Map, please, sorry. Yeah, I see Ephesus right there. Okay? So this was the this is like a trading port between the east and the west in the book in, in, in Ephesus. It was a very pagan city it was devoted to the god Artemis or Diana and the Roman gods, if you're familiar with them. So Paul makes on his second missionary journey, he makes a brief stay there. Right? Stops for a little bit. Reasons with the Jews, they ask him to come back. So on his third missionary journey, he goes to the synagogues first because these are God's chosen people. He was a Jew, so he understood their religion and culture. Taught them for several months, and then they started harassing him. They didn't want him. They didn't want the Jesus sect. So then he goes to the Hall of Tyrannus, part of ancient Ephesus, and he stays there for two and a half years. Right? He spent three months in the synagogue in Ephesus, and then two and a half years in the Hall of Tyrannus in the ancient city of Ephesus, which still exists today. You can go there. It's in modern-day Izmir in southern Turkey. It's an amazing place. So he shares the gospel of Jesus as Messiah. Jews start speaking against it, went to the hall. And this is kind of like, it might have been a place for gymnastic or education, or they always had places for people to practice speech giving or rhetoric, philosophy. Perhaps even a theater could have been. We're not exactly sure where it is. But likely Paul was rented it, or was rented to Paul, and someone allowed to use them. Allowed Paul to use it. So he preached and taught every day <coughs> for two years. And it says, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So this is a city of probably a quarter million people. And if the whole region of Asia would be about two and a half million people. This is incredible, right? Many Jews and many Greeks started coming to this church. Right? We know from the book of Ephesus and other places that it comprised both Jews and Gentiles. And that's why you'll see as we go into it deeper, unity is one of the themes. You've got people of very different cultures coming together. And it's so successful, the gospel there, that tradesmen were losing money selling their little miniature silver gods to Artemis. Starts a riot. Right? And the people are losing their minds. And this one, Paul says, I'm done. My work here is done. 
if it's causing people to lose money, that's that's a good sign that, that God's kingdom is growing, right? These pagan gods. And it's a large church. It's actually one of the seven churches mentioned in, the, in Revelation. So they were one of the lead churches in, in its day. So God took a pagan mega city with a false god and turned it into a place where everyone heard and knew the gospel. Could you imagine if everyone, even if not everyone quite believed, but everyone was like, Yes, I know the gospel. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for my sins, rose again on the third day, and all who believe in them will have salvation. Could you imagine if every Kuwaiti, every Muslim knew that? What kind of seeds that would plant in people's hearts? That's what happened in Paul's time. And this can happen in Kuwait 100%. Because we are all missionaries. Even though we have jobs and families, we're still missionaries and emissaries to his kingdom. Right? Our influence, the people we interact with, many of them are not going to be believers. They're going to be Muslims. But our influence and our sharing can reshape this country. I know that even for me, even though I've not done the best job, there's more people who know of the gospel before I came than now. Because I have tried to pray and to share Jesus with people. And we should pray that every person would hear the words of the Lord like in Ephesus. Pray for Jesus to be lifted up in every household here. Pray that the government would be full of believers in Christ. Not impossible. Very possible. We also should pray and encourage unity in this church. We got people from different cultures, right? Languages, cultures, theological backgrounds. It can be hard like in Ephesus to be united but we need to ask God for unity. And like I said at the break, don't just spend time with your own cultural group in this church. Reach out to people of other ethnicities, other nationalities, other languages. You will have be enriched by it. This is what God, this is what heaven is going to be like. Right? With his revelation, there will be people from, there will be people from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. Worshiping the Lamb of God who is slain. So in conclusion, band, you can come up. Just as God used me to be a pastor, he plans to use all of us for his kingdom. Even if you're the unlike, even if you're the most shy person, you're the least engaging person. It says that Paul himself had a speech impediment, right? He was slow of speech, it says. He was not some great orator. But God used him in a powerful way. God has an upside-down kingdom to show that his ways are not the world's ways. God used a poor Jewish carpenter to suffer and die to achieve salvation and to usher in non-Jews into his kingdom. God can use our weakness and our brokenness to accentuate and show the Gospels for everyone. God can use Paul, an enemy of God's kingdom, to be his greatest missionary. And he can use us to be his missionaries in Kuwait because we're the, we're the least likely, right? <clears throat> God can take a pagan city like Ephesus and make it one of the largest churches in the known world. And he can take a Muslim country like Kuwait that values money and power and turn it into a people who love Jesus. Amen. We should pray for his kingdom to come to this land. Let's stand up on our feet and we'll pray. <clears throat> <clears throat> mm -hmm. 
God, thank you so much for the book of Ephesians that we can know that we are not unlike these people. We are people who love you, who want to worship you, and you can use us to change this land permanently for your kingdom, for your glory. We want Kuwait to be a place of light and that removes darkness. And the light of the gospel can penetrate this place. I pray for, for us to be his missionaries in this place, that we use every opportunity to share the love of Jesus, what Jesus has done in our lives, and share that with other people. So people have questions, people have their interests. I also pray for dreams and visions to come upon the people of this land who do not know you, that this place will be filled <coughs> Not just with expats, but with also people from the local culture who have become Christians and who want to worship you in spirit and in truth. God, please bless every person here. I pray that they heard from you this morning through the worship, through the preaching, through the fellowship. And that you'd be with us the rest of this day and the rest of this week. We love you, Jesus. We ask for us in your name. Amen. Amen. Man, we'll do one more song and I'll give you